0: Coming up on this week's episode, we discuss the EasyJet data breach, the Hollywood law firm being held to ransom, eBay port scanning its customers, the importance of defense in depth, and in Secrets from the Sock, we talk about how you can land your first role in cybersecurity.
1: Evening, guys, we meet again. Another okay. episode. How are we doing?
0: Episode five. Doing well. Well, I've got a suntan.
1: Have you been on holiday? <laughs> Where did you go? You back garden? Went to the park. Way, hey, which one?
0: <laughs> Local to me, Doglands.
1: What was it like? Lots of people out ignoring social distancing. Oh,
0: it's a bit of a hidden gem, actually. Not a lot of people there. Uh, so I've definitely yeah. caught the sun. I look great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. What about you, Will? What's cracking?
0: I'm good.
2: I'm good. I, uh, I haven't got a tan, would you believe? Um, You've got yeah, the ginger
1: gene. The ginger
2: gene. So, um, I've been hiding in the shadows like I normally do during the sun.
1: <laughs> Putting on Factor 80 sun cream. <laughs> <laughs> I must say your hair is looking very long. That's a proper 80. lion's mane, that, isn't it? It that
2: not it its Ridiculous. It grows uh, so far as well.
1: If I squint and tilt my head to the left slightly, I think I'm looking at Ed Sheeran.
2: <laughs> my wife says I look like the bloke out of um, Home Alone, I'm one of the burglars. I do
1: that. Oh, so loving. <laughs> right, it's been a busy couple of weeks. I don't know about you, but ever since lockdown happened, uh, my job has just got so busy. There's so much going on, lots of stuff to focus on. Um, I, I you thought you know it would be quieter with companies furloughing people, but it's just. Busy, very, very busy. Can't complain, better than being bored, that's for sure. But uh, boy, am I feeling knackered as we record this. Um, That being said, it's been another interesting couple of weeks since the last podcast episode. News has kind of chopped and changed around uh, and we've picked out a couple of juicy headlines we want to talk about this week. First of which being EasyJet the EasyJet breach, which impacts near on 9 million customers. Alex, I'm pretty sure that you've um, jumped into that this week.
0: Yep. So the UK's biggest airline, EasyJet, has suffered pretty substantial data breach. Uh, 9 million customers have had their email address and their travel itinerary information accessed by an unauthorised third party. And within that, there's been 2,000 customers who've had their payment card details accessed. Which is really, really not good, you know. Um, in this time, where not only can no one travel, they're now being told that any holidays that they may have booked in the past, they've been impacted by a data breach. Uh, Will, I know that you were impacted by this. What's your view? How, how are you feeling about this?
2: <clears throat> I was impacted, thankfully not on a credit card front. Um, I kind of expected it. I'm a heavy user of EasyJet throughout the last sort of uh, six months. I think I've flown. You know half a dozen times maybe but um it's frustrating you know although i was expecting it it's still pretty frustrating and you know when you get that email through saying hey sorry about this but you've been breached um you know watch out for phishing emails thanks bye
1: it's a bit just like oh, okay do they confirm or deny that your car details have been accessed or did they not not say anything so they could they in the email they
2: confirm that your yeah they confirm that your car deals haven't been accessed um, they say that um, it's it was your kind of itinerary so where you flew from and to and when um, my wife got the same email as well um, so yeah I'm annoyed because I think whenever you're you know you put trust in companies and like everyone everyone puts trust in companies and whenever that trust is breached, I think it's a difficult thing to stomach, um, you know, especially in, in 2020. I sympathise with them, I guess, as well. You know, that things are having a, they're having a hard time with you know, with the coronavirus and, you know, no one wants to see any jobs go and stuff like that. Um, so it's a kind of, I think it's mixed things across the board really. So, Alex,
1: exactly what data was taken?
0: So aside from the 2000 that had payment card information taken, it was just that of email addresses and literally they've described it as travel itinerary. So I believe that will be details of any flights that were booked. So where you're flying from, where you're flying to, uh, all sorts of information that will and can and will lead to an increase in sort of spear fishing for the victims you know, uh, full travel information and especially you couple that with coronavirus at the moment makes a really good package for someone to to send you a bit of a nasty email out, out of the blue relating to your holiday that you know you've booked and you're likely to fall victim to it which is really quite unfortunate.
1: I guess it's kind of lucky in a way that usernames and passwords weren't taken because, you know, that's the kind of standard typical breach that we tend to see, passwords get hashed um, or they get uh, decrypted or cracked, and then all of a sudden you've got clear text passwords available up, up for sale as an account. In this case, it's, it, it's um, it is unique that it's specific type of data, which you know kind of thinks, kind of makes me think. Okay, what type of applications were they targeting? Where is this data held? Clearly, might not be direct customer account information because you'd expect to see a little bit more there, maybe date of birth, address, these sort of things to be taken. Um, and you could think they easyjet may have almost kind of got away got, got off lightly if it was only kind of travel itinerary data and, and email just has taken but the fact that the car detail was taken it really is the kind of thorn in the side of this one that just goes to show um, it's a pretty significant and serious breach the sheer number nine million as well is just um, yeah is is really significant our, thought, our thoughts go out to the people working in the security teams at easyjet because i can only imagine what they're going through and it's a Difficult time to try and pick this apart, um, but yeah, again, during COVID nineteen, airlines have been grounded. They're making n- zero money, uh, to, to very little money. I know EasyJet are flying a few flights, whether it be, you know, international or domestic, and uh, this is really going to be uh, a make or break um, breach for them. I'd be interesting to see how the ICO come down on EasyJet here. Are they going to impose huge fines based on their revenue over the last year or so or are they going to take that a little, or are they going to ease up a little bit knowing that because of coronavirus they've been grounded they've they're in a really tricky position the next article which arguably is uh the one i find most interesting this week is a data breach at a law firm that allegedly has links back to u.s president donald trump alex again you've been diving into this one explain to me what actually has happened here
0: yeah, pretty hot topic this week. Uh, a law firm called GSM Law have been hit by a strain of Revel, Revel, R-E-V-I-L, with a capital R and a capital E isn't ransomware.
1: Isn't Revels? That's when you get the coffee sweet, isn't
0: it? Making, making me hungry now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Revel ransomware. Uh, they have stolen around 700 gigs of data before then encrypting the files, and they're being held to ransom but this law firm deals with a number of a-list celebrities allegedly allegedly Donald Trump Elton John Lady Gaga Tom Cruise Madonna just to name a few now the law firm have refused to pay the ransom and with that being said the threat actors behind the ransomware are now threatening to auction off this data now there has been some data leaked allegedly allegedly related to lady gaga what's really interesting about this is the fbi's response to this and Will, you mentioned that you had looked into this a little bit and their response. What's your view on their response?
2: Yeah, so I, I was just um, drawing attention to that there's a uh, Forbes article about this. Um, and in there, they, they mentioned that the FBI, you know, initially looked at classing it, um, a ransomware attack, as being as a terrorist act, um, which they have then potentially, you know, later gone back on and said, well, you know, it, it could be a terrorist attack. So I think we're entering a kind of interesting fit area now where, um, you know, is this a, will this be a change in the dynamics of, you know, um, attacks on, you know, American, um, you know, diplomats and, um, you know, British residents was treating things as terrorist attacks, or was this just a kind of slip of the tongue by the FBI there, you know, um, trying to keep things under control a little bit?
1: I mean, my personal opinion here is that that's got to be a slip of a tongue or a bit of a gung-ho response from whatever spokesperson within the FBI. I've done a little bit of study around kind of terrorism um, last year, and terrorism itself is defined by using violence to enact complete fear within people. And although, yes, ransomware in this attack clearly will have an impact on the people behind it, you know, such as these celebrities, it's going to have an an impact on their, their profile, on their life. However, you know, when you try and classify it against the traditional terrorism that we might be aware of, I really don't see how it links here. Is it scaremongering to try and warn people off doing this, that, okay, you might go down as a terrorist or you might get convicted under some form of terror act? Maybe, but it just screams to me as a bit of a a gung-ho response, which is probably why they backtrack so quickly.
2: Yeah, I mean, the other important bit that's kind of mentioned in the article is the fact that, um, so I'm quoting from the article here, it says, We've been informed by experts and the FBI that negotiating with or paying ransoms to terrorists is a violation of federal criminal law. So I think that's quite significant in itself. That, you know, what they're saying there is, you know, if the, if this is classed as a terrorism attack um, or terrorist offence, sorry, then you don't even have the option of paying the ransom because if you do, you've committed a, you know, a further. Um,
1: it's um, a, a double-edged sword, really, because. And we mentioned on, was it previous podcast or the one before that, about never paying ransomware. What position are you putting somebody in to say, OK, well, look, if I want to get my business back up and running and my board or the business have decided that engaging with the threat actors or paying a ransom is the quickest way around this. To incite that as a kind of criminal activity really puts a company in a very, very difficult position, especially if they're not prepared in any way to deal with this cyber attack.
0: The threat actors behind this have also made a statement and they said they will begin auctioning off this data and they do not care who buys it. So very, very clearly there they are stating explicitly they're in this for money. So when it comes down to the definition of terrorism, I'm pretty sure, and Ed, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's something relating to the motivation behind it and the intention relating to a certain ideology or religious or political beliefs, not just making money. And I think the threat actors have stated they know that the people that are going to buy this data are either the companies or the celebrities that are impacted. So this is purely a money-making exercise.
2: I do wonder if if, if the angle that the FBI are coming from is that um, Trump is, you know, there, there's going to be an election campaign this year, potentially, probably. Um, and there was mention, I think, in the articles that um, the threat actors have made mention to the upcoming campaigns um, and encouraging you know, opponents perhaps to purchase those that information. You know, and once you start you know, once you start weaponising that information for the purpose of political change or gain, um, you know, what happens if, you know, political opponents or even other nation states do purchase that information and it is compromising, could that then be used to then leverage political gain? So I think is it's actually quite It's quite a difficult one, I think, actually,
1: because we don't really know and no one really knows exactly what that data contains yet. The last news article we want to touch on this week is all around security researcher who has potentially identified eBay, the buying and selling site, port scanning customers who visit them to detect applications such as TeamViewer or other remote access Trojans.
0: I think this is a great step forward. Uh, eBay haven't explicitly admitted that they are doing this. But I've, I've dug into the article and some of the research around it and you can see that when you visit uh, ebay there is some javascript code running which does scan your local host for certain exposed ports which are then consistent with the likes of team viewer vnc and other known remote access tools and trojans this is really really cool i think this is a really really good step we've had previous conversations in the past about you know who is the the onus on to protect the customers. If we look at the likes of Zoom and the IoT provider Ring, we're thinking, you know, should uh, 2FA be mandatory for these accounts? So should account security be enforced by the company? Or is it on the user to stop doing password reuse? eBay have just come out with this and we're suddenly looking at their customers that are visiting their site and checking to see if they're compromised or not. But to point out, it's not yet known what they're doing with that data, or what they are planning to do with it, but it's definitely a really interesting first step. I guess
1: it's also worth understanding is do they know it's there um, we'd like to think that eBay have a plan around this and that they're uh, utilizing this information to better protect customer accounts or potentially understand the buying habits of people around them maybe it's a way of trying to detect botnets that are used for kind of eBay sniping and things like that um, yeah it, I'm eager to sit and wait to find out whether eBay do have a kind of response to this or whether this is an emerging technology or strategy that Online e-commerce platforms and retailers might end up adopting in the future. I think it's a really um,
2: interesting kind of territory around. To me, it screams of a of a kind of okay, uh, like more active intelligence gathering technique. You know, rather than just sort of sitting sitting there and kind of looking at what's what you know what's what's hitting what's hitting you and what you can see. You know, it's actually kind of going back and saying, you know, what can we tell of the people that are coming to us.
0: Yeah, to call out that it could be used for fingerprinting and it could be used for things completely outside of security, more likely to be customer fingerprinting, advertising, something along those lines, customer data along the lines of buying and selling habits.
1: Okay, that wraps up the cyber news this week. Um, Before we jump into the next one, I wanted to quickly touch on the poll that Alex, you put on our LinkedIn page. Um, I'm just going to pull up the stats now. So if you don't know, if you don't follow our page on LinkedIn, that's kind of where we post roughly what we're doing some news articles and some of our blog posts so we highly recommend you hop over to the hackable you linkedin page so alex put a post on there well alex i'll let you explain what have you done
0: essentially i was curious as to what your uh what the listeners favorite evening tipples were so you know have a long day slaving away at work and then you sit down in front of the, front of the tv and you crack open a beer Do so you pour yourself a glass of wine you on the whiskey or something else, a cider or even a soft drink. So I did a quick poll just to see what everyone's favourite evening drinks were. And then also, whatever the favourite drink was going to be is what we're going to be drinking during the podcast. Thankfully, Whiskey lost, because I haven't got any whiskeys.
1: I, right? I, I was watching this, and Whiskey was in the lead for such a long time. and I was like, mate, I cannot that this that by the end of the podcast secrets from the sock will be just a load of guff and not worth listening to because we'll be knocking back whiskey no so i can go through the uh through the stats so we had plenty of votes so thank you to everyone that did um slap a vote on there i'm pleased to say that craft or standard beer won with 45 percent whiskey came in a close second at 36 percent which you know as i've already said did get my heart going i can see will has gone even paler than he normally is no offense will <laughs> wine came in at 40 14 and then kind of other trailing behind so yeah thanks to everyone that voted and uh yeah thanks for those that voted craft beer especially i think you, you deserve a round of applause for saving our skin and not being too pissed on this podcast
2: well mainly saving ed because i'm r so i can have my whiskey
1: yeah okay fine i'll take that <laughs> anyway let's hop into the topic of the week Right, topic of the week this week is a term that most people in the industry would have heard. If you studied any junior or entry level security exam, you definitely would have um, come across this, and it is the phrase defense in depth or layered security. So I touched upon this in a recent blog post uh, entitled What Call of Duty Warzone Taught Me About Cybersecurity. And it prompted us to talk about this on this week's podcast mostly because it is such an important factor to think about for most people kind of under- wanting to understand the basis of security this is a great place to start to understand how businesses might roll out protections in their environment and for me it drops security back to those basic principles and the cia triangle and all these sorts of things defense in depth is such a foundational thing that people should understand so Defence in depth is about having
2: a layered security landscape, where you have various different. It's like an onion. Do you know what I mean you have different layers, and which point you put in different measures to counter um, potential security threats, so that if, if you manage to get through one layer, then you still have to get through the next layer, and then the next layer, and the next layer, um, rather than the alternative where you just have a perimeter that you reach and then you're free to go. Um, or there is or there is something, you know, internal randomly set and then there's no, uh, there's no restrictions once you get beyond that.
1: So what you're telling me is that even though I might have uh, perimeter firewalls across my network with a very, very strict uh, rule base that really defines what's allowed in and out, that doesn't stop me, that is not defense in depth.
2: Exactly. The attackers have got to get lucky once. Uh, you have to get lucky every single time, which is a really common phrase, I think, that gets bounded around uh, the security industry. But it's true. You know, they they get through the perimeter once, and then they're free to roam, and then you're stuffed. Um, whereas, you know, if you've got a layered approach um, or a de- defence in depth approach, um, then they have to tackle each of
1: those um, different security measures at each step. Exactly, and I think it's important to call out that, just like you said, right? An onion has layers. It's all about the different layers within your organization, where data is moved, what systems you're trying to protect, and putting the relevant control there. It's fair to say that defense and depth isn't just a linear thing. It's not like, okay, well, well I've got a firewall at the perimeter. I've got uh, database security on my databases. I've got antivirus on my endpoints. You know, that's kind of one straight line between my client out to the internet uh, in, in some way. It, it's not about that. There are multiple layers, multiple... Um, Directions that defense in depth can go through. And it's about placing the relevant control that minimizes the risks that your business is facing in the right place.
0: I think people need to understand and realize that defense in depth can be so, so broad. Even user awareness counts as a layer of defense. So it's not just about the most cutting edge technology. It's not just about having your perfect firewall, which denies everything, because there are multiple vectors of attack. So having just one layer of defense isn't going to be enough. If you look, for example, at, at a piece of mal- a piece of ransomware delivery, if it's coming in via email, it's landing on the endpoint, it's then calling out to a command and control server. So at each one of those levels, there is something to be put in place to stop that sort of thing from happening.
1: Yeah, and if we take a look at a semi-modern, up-to-date organization and its kind of skeletal structure, we're going to have some uh, end users with some laptops who are going to have access to the internet We're probably going to have some corporate assets or servers that are running or applications. Um, We're going to have some cloud-based applications, whether that be software as a service, whether that be cloud-based infrastructure such as AWS or Azure. We're going to have email, so an email client, um, and we're going to have then kind of data storage. So all of these things have an appropriate control that surrounds it. So just like Alex said, and, and as Will said, if you breach the perimeter, there are multiple hurdles that are there to thwart an attacker so if we take that by example right if we start at an endpoint endpoint defense you're looking at antivirus you're looking at uh, endpoint detection and response software anti-ransomware stuff to detect malicious code running on a laptop if your user who's browsing the internet you're going to want to jump out via a proxy server Now, these proxy servers have URL filtering, category filtering, sandboxing. Some of the more advanced ones can do a hell of a lot more than I've just listed. That provides security on your outbound internet access to protect not only your users, uh, but the endpoints as well to stop a malicious file from ever being downloaded from the internet. As an email, you have email security gateways, the likes of Cisco, Proofpoint, Mimecast, who will filter based on reputation, based on particular policy, they will scan the attachments which protect inbound and outbound emails, if you so wish. Moving over to kind of your corporate assets, again, servers should have some form of endpoint security on there, but specific applications running on those servers, you have the security controls around there, whether that be a web application firewall, which is looking at layer 7 traffic. And then you have your network security. And we, in a real basic way, we can look at this at firewalls and our switches on our routers that route traffic and direct traffic through the network. And right at the perimeter of there, you should have your firewalls and your routers that have specific access control lists, that have uh, IDS, so intrusion detection or intrusion prevention systems. What I forgot to mention there was cloud. So with the cloud native approach or hybrid environment, you have the likes of Casby now, or data loss prevention to stop data being uploaded out to the cloud and your communication to the cloud is secure and encrypted and all these sorts of things. So you can see there, it's not about one solution that's just slapped in that protects your company. It's about putting the relevant control on the relevant layer of that onion that protects them in the best way it possibly can. So
2: quick question to you two then off the back of that because you mentioned various types of security measures there, you talked about AV, antivirus, you talked about endpoint security, uh, email security etc. Where do you feel or what do you feel the importance of vendor diversity fits into all of that?
1: So I, ha- I'm, I guess I'm quite biased and passionate about this given that I wrote about it recently. My personal view is that There are many vendors out there that will give you the one size fits all. We can do everything for you. We can do your internet. We can do your endpoint. We can do your email, all these sorts of things, which is brilliant. Don't get me wrong. There are definite financial or budgetary benefits from doing that. Consolidation of security tools is really useful. But for me, it's about, you know, are you buying the best of breed for your company? Are you getting the most out of it? And is this company or are these vendors really focusing on those areas as much as they should be? Aside from the kind of availability concerns that might have if a company is have issues, it won't affect your, it won't impact your entire estate. So personally for me, it's about changing the technology you're using, using the best of what you can, when best of what your budget can afford, best of what your uh, architecture can kind of build in, and diversifying what you have. but again, not so much that for every single security solution, for every single layer defense and defense in depth you have a different solution. It's about weighing up the ease of use and ease of rollout to the kind of diverse profile of defence that you might need.
0: I was on the receiving end of a sales pitch from a well-known vendor and what they said to me was, would you like to fly in a plane that had all its parts made by lots of different people? And the point that they were making is you wouldn't. So you should go with all the parts to be made by the same person. But I think that's actually completely untrue. You want to fly a plane that is made by someone that specialises in engines making the engine, someone that specialises in wings making the wings, and so on and so forth. So like you said, Ed, just because you have one vendor in mind, you should actually go for the vendor that specialises in the correct equipment that suits your environment and protects you the best.
1: When you look at a business right, you focus on people, processes and technology, and there will be a defence mechanism or a defence tool that allows one of those to really flourish and fit in well with what your current processes are what your current people are trained to do. There's no point going out there and buying the most complex email security gateway solution if you don't have the people to sit there and administer it, or you're going to have to spend a lot of time and money training them to do it, where you could move to something that's more appropriate that they would understand and and make sure you're using that in the best way possible and bolster the security potentially with something else. A really good example of that, I find, is that companies that are utilising either Google or Office 365 for their email, there are a lot of really good security settings within those suites themselves. However, on their own, the question is, is it enough to protect your entire environment? Lots of organisations will put an external email gateway in that channel or in that traffic flow to provide an extra layer of security and one that's far more granular and can be tuned in a slightly different way than the actual email provider do themselves okay secrets on the sock we like this don't we? we we'll have a good chat about what we want to talk about i think this is where we can kind of ramble as much as we want talk about our experience and things like that so um what i really wanted to touch on this week is all around uh, that kind of entry-level security, how somebody who is trying to get into the industry or somebody that might have hopes to move into security and preparing yourself to enter the cyber security industry. I myself have done it, kind of went from a network engineer, network security engineer, then jumped kind of fully into the kind of security space. Alex, you've got a diverse background as well, as has Will. So we have all kind of, jumped and moved into security and had to kind of prepare ourselves to jump into this and the lesson I really want to give people and I really feel like we have some good experience that we can discuss here because I genuinely feel like cybersecurity industry or working within a SOC is so unique and it really pulls on experience across multiple backgrounds and there is a really good way that you can prepare yourself to understand that. Alex, you know, we've worked together in the past, as uh, you and I will, and I've seen both of you kind of jump into that security industry. I'll, I'll kind of put this on you, really, and say, all right, you were the ones that made the decision to apply for that job within security. What was going through your mind at the time? And what sort of things were you thinking about, firstly, to decide that you wanted to work in the cybersecurity industry? And then also, what were you doing to get yourself ready for that kind of interview application process?
0: Uh, you've, got, you've got to have the passion for it. You've got to really want to do it. So, you know, that means keeping up to date with the latest news. You maybe want to be doing some practicing in your spare time with the latest techniques and procedures that are being used by threat actors. You really, really enjoy the subject. And that's the first thing I'd say for a grounding in cybersecurity is you have to enjoy it and you have to think it's a really interesting path to follow.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll second that. I mean, I arguably I've come from the least related field uh, out of the three of us um, and the least qualified field in many ways. but I think, you know, Alex is right. I think you've really, really got to have a passion for it. Um, it is a field that moves incredibly quickly. Um, and, you, you know, you really kind of have to want to keep up to date and really want to have that drive. Um, I guess for me, yes, technical skills are important. Um, but do you know what, I have I speak to a few people who run socks, and they can normally recruit people with technical skills. They struggle with people who have like investigation skills. Um, and I guess from my point of view, that's where I kind of moved into the industry because of my investigation background.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think what I would want people to take away is that if you're looking to move into the industry, if you've got that passion already to do it, make sure you're 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 doing something with that. We've mentioned before how important it is to stay self-aware and self-educated. Really stay in tune with the ongoings of of the industry, such, you know, listening to what we're saying within the news here, all of these interesting things. What I want to touch on is around about how fast paced the industry is, as you touched on, Will, and trying to kind of emphasize that it's a very fast paced learning environment. And lots of people who have an idea that they want to join security, but don't know how, is because, you know, a lot of it can be seen behind closed doors. The reality is that from your first day on the job, if you if you jump into the industry to your 30th day a month in, they're going to look very, very different in most cases because the graph in which you learn on will be exponential from day one, from not really knowing anything in that kind of junior stock position to, to kind of the one month in, you would have been exposed to specific types of alarms. You would have been exposed to what IDS looks like, what a security incident looks like, how your team gels together and the, the kind of components of those two teams that we've discussed. So, understanding the day and the life of a security analyst is really useful alex has written a very useful blog post on that which i encourage anyone wanting to enter the industry to kind of read and understand so i think stay educated and understand what's going on in the environment have that passion and use it alex has already said go and do as legal ways to practice such as hack the box or vuln hub and a few others be prepared to learn and learn quickly and and show that you are willing to learn you know if you're interviewed and somebody asks you so you know why do you want to be in this role express that you do it in your spare time it's something that you want you have self-drive to go and learn this you know will and alex i've come to will really if if you were to talk to yourself you know a couple of years ago when you were applying to move into security what would you tell yourself now knowing what you know
2: what would i tell myself i'll probably tell myself that i can do it because like i said i came from a totally non-technical background I didn't you know the last time I did any IT was back in 2004 or six when I, went, I did IT at college um, so on this, you know on the face of it I'm not an obvious fit for a you know for a technical role um, but I think diversity in, in socks in the investigation teams is absolutely crucial you know you need people who know you know how to how to investigate things from a from a network point of view, or from a programming point of view, or from a or from a you know um, a um, I don't know, you know a, a web application point of view, but you know, you also need people who know and can train others and how to how to take those investigation steps, and that's kind of where I feel in. So, and I spend a lot of my spare time, you know, I spend probably I'm not even exaggerating, 15 to 20 hours additionally a week trying to technically catch up with my peers um, but I think you, you've got to be driving in this industry it's such a
1: and that's really important to call out right as much as everything we said could sound a bit scary and a bit daunting it's exciting I'm never bored there's always something going on there's always something interesting to talk about um, and like you said Will the opportunities to learn and trying to catch up is what drives us Alex, what about you? If you were to look back at yourself pre-interview moving into security, what lessons are you going to tell yourself?
0: I think I'd give myself a heads up as to how much there is to know in security and how many different channels there are to security. There are so many different paths within cybersecurity to go down. And as a a, a competent incident responder, you need to have your sort of toe in the water of several different domains. As much as specialising, is is really really important you still need to have an idea of what's happening in other areas
1: there's no such thing as a, a bad opportunity right so many different paths within security different niches specialisms threat intelligence vulnerability management mm-hmm. malware reversing stuff that we've mentioned in the past before the opportunity within the security industry is rife and don't feel like you have to fit the mold of one of those profiles straight away don't feel like you have to be a complete finely tuned ethical hacker to be able to jump into a junior penetration testing position. Don't feel like you have to be a computer scientist to be able to go be a security engineer, you know, don't feel like you have to be uh, an ex-police officer to be able to jump into an incident response investigation type thing. Having the drive to learn and understanding that there are so many different ways that you can learn and move around inside a security operations centre or cyber security remit itself proves that once you get your foot in the door and you can learn and you pick up what you like and you can enjoy you can definitely pursue that as a career
2: and i would say as well from a you know we're talking talking to those leaders right now you know personally for me my message is is think out of the box when you when you have when you have recruits or recruits when you have people that come for jobs and they don't come from traditional backgrounds um you know think out of the box i think you know, I think, um, Ed, you know, you've interviewed and recruited people and I think you'd agree that sometimes, you know, it's, um, it's not always all about what technical skills someone can put on a bit of paper.
1: Absolutely. With the relevant training behind you, and that's not paid for training. Yes, these things help and getting companies to pay for courses and certifications is definitely a bonus. But there is so much stuff out there free. Cybery, Plurisite, Udemy low cost or free training that if you find the glint in somebody's eye that want to learn it and you can put them in front of the screen and point them in some resources there is your winner there is the person who is going to provide the most amount of benefit to you because they're ready to learn they're ready to get stuck in and they're not just going to sit on their already known technical knowledge so i totally agree where there is definite of course a use case to hire somebody that's technically competent in the area you need to hire if you're looking for uh, certain pe- the right people within the SOC take your mind that's outside of that you know remit of you must be technically capable come up with a good training plan a good introduction plan for your junior analysts or anyone into the team where they get a real flavor of the security operation a good example of that I mean we did you know I, you guys went through for sure which is that you join the team you maybe spend uh, a week with uh, the, the tier one guys or the triage guys doing the item and glass monitoring You might then go and spend a week with the security engineers and the vulnerability management penetration testing areas and you can get a real flavor and learn so quickly about that. We gave you guys targets about you know doing some training and all these sorts of things so have a really good program in place to introduce your your hires who haven't come from a security background or a technical background into the environment and watch them grow over that time as they settle in nicely into what it's like to work in a SOC, because, you know, like like Will's already said, you're hiring a mindset there, a willing um, and capable mindset that is ready to jump into the world of cybersecurity. And sometimes that's the diamond in the rough.
0: And so the candidates that are maybe sitting there thinking, oh, I'm not technical enough, or I don't know enough about this, don't let that put you off because you're gonna have a candidate that is an absolute whiz on Cali that you know they can hack the socks off whatever you want but if you put them in a room with an executive try and have them explain an incident the impact what they're going to do next what's caused it they're going to completely crumble because they haven't got that full rounded personality to be able to explain they haven't got the communication skills to put the technical skills together and be effective as an instant responder so do not be put off by thinking you're not technical enough since my blog post on uh, a day in the life of a stock analyst, I've had some people reach out to me and ask me, you know, what what's the best certification I can go for to get into the industry? And you know, I'll, I'll give them some pointers, but actually, it's not all about certifications. Be a well-rounded individual.
1: I totally agree. I you know I didn't go to university. I don't have a degree. Always thought that would kind of hold me back, but it really hasn't. I've gone and pushed for what I wanted, and 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 trained, and self-taught, and. Been very lucky and grateful to have people back me in, in, the, in my career. It just goes to show you, if you're not coming to the table with a certification it, it doesn't stop you. Soft skills versus technical skills, very fine balance and neither one is more important than the other um, but don't let your lack of one or the other put you off from jumping in and applying and entering what we all believe to be the most exciting, the most fun, the most rewarding industry that you can work in. Don't get me wrong, It's bloody hard work sometimes, and often we are knackered. And a beer on a Friday is what we're looking forward to the most. But uh, we enjoy it; otherwise, we wouldn't do it.
0: Friday, beer, every day. To be honest,
1: (laughs) that's how you feel at the minute, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But also, uh, network, network with your peers, LinkedIn, social media, reach out to people already in the industry, reach out to any one of us. If you don't know anybody at the moment and you're really looking to get a toe in the water of cybersecurity, drop one of us a line. We'll happily advise.
1: Okay, that finishes the podcast for this week. Key takeaways, I think I'm gonna jump on the defense and depth wagon and just say, really have a broad mind to how you're placing your security controls within your organization. Don't put all your eggs in one basket with one control and sometimes one vendor. Look at putting the best of breed that you can afford or that your company can implement and you'll have a really good strong security defense and depth strategy. Alex, what about you? Key takeaway for this week?
0: Mine's actually a message to those either new to the industry or those trying to get into the industry that may be listening. Uh, reach out to us. Ask for some help. There's nothing wrong with that at all. We will all happily spend some time to drop you some advice.
1: We do have an email address, which is info at You're more than welcome to email that, and we will jump in and try to provide you the support that we can. Will, last but of course not least. The most
2: important one last, right? Exactly. Um, uh, I'm going to go again with, um, I guess as a follow-up to Alex's around those non those kind of soft skills and non-traditional skills. Next week I'm going to be writing a post about uh, investigation and the investigative mindset to try and help you kind of get into that right state of mind for when you do have to, have to kind of uh, dig into these investigations. So keep an eye out for that. Um, hopefully that will kind of
1: help thank you very much guys. It is a Wednesday evening. We're going to continue drinking the beers because you guys voted for us to, to, to do those um, and we will catch you in the next episode.